The Start On Demand. On demand. It was a violent weekend in Winnipeg. Three homicides and an incident in which a baby was shot. We'll speak to the head of the Winnipeg Police Association, Mo Sabrin, and the chief of police, Danny Smythe. A terrible crash on Friday on the south perimeter at Brady Road, which saw a 19-year-old man killed. We'll speak to a trucker about that dangerous stretch of road, and we actually hear from the mother of the 19-year-old man who died. His name is Ethan. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers come through big to close out the regular season, so we'll ask Bob Irving who should get the call now at starting QB. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, October 28th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Greg Mackling had a bit of a whirlwind weekend. Out to Regina and back in 24 hours? Well, yeah, pretty much. Uh, well, 36 hours from the time we left to the time we got back in Regina for 24 hours. Mm. And uh, let me tell you, Regina knows how to put on a party. They know how to move people to and from their stadium super mm. efficiently. I was very much impressed like better with than the here? system. I won't say better than here because I... I drive to the games and I'm fortunate enough to, to park very close to the stadium on the footprint. Because you're part so, of the broadcast Well, team. yeah. So I'm not going to judge. I don't know how easy it's not or is now, but versus three or four years ago when I was going to the games as a fan, I found it just very impressive how they move people in Regina. There's more people to move too, right? Bigger stadium. Uh, no, the stadium's the same size. Oh, 33,000. Really? It, it looks bigger. Well, it's that gigantic, the canopy and that that horseshoe shape it, and the way it reaches up into the sky. It is very impressive. So uh, hats off to Regina for throwing an amazing party on the weekend. Saturday night's game was fantastic. The Jets come back. They win it in overtime. It was cold. What was the crowd like in terms of who they were supporting? It seemed to be more Jets. It was visibly more Jets, but sound-wise, it, it might have been 50-50. So maybe some of the Saskatchewan fans who were on the fence that didn't wear a jersey of either team might have been cheering more for Calgary. But in terms of the uh, paraphernalia and the jerseys and the merchandise in the stands, it was it was majority Jets, not by a not by a wide margin, but it was majority Jets. And how many of these outdoor games have you been to now? That's just the second one. Yeah, the yeah. other one was the one that was here? Here in Winnipeg three years ago when it was about plus 13 when mm. they dropped the puck. Well, that's why they had the game so late Saturday night was to prevent that whole sun-melting-the-ice situation we went through last time around. Yeah, it was that snow globe atmosphere, the (laughs) blowing snow. It was windy. We were in about the fourth last row up in the upper deck. Oh, my God. We had a great view, though. You could see everything. Couldn't tell who had the puck. Yeah. You couldn't read the names or the numbers (laughs) on the back of those gorgeous Jets jerseys. Oh, please turn those into their permanent uniforms. Anyway, it was a great time, and... uh, uh, if you're a restaurateur, open a Carl's Jr. in Winnipeg. <laughs> we stopped at Carl's Jr. on the way out of town, and I think uh, every license plate in the parking lot was Manitoba. I have long lamented that we don't have a Carl's Jr. or Hardee's. I don't even know what you're talking about. What's a Carl's Jr.? Gourmet hamburgers. They are so good. Yeah, it's a fast food joint in the States, and I've never understood why we don't have them or Hardee's in Winnipeg. And... Uh, I had no idea that they were next door in Saskatchewan. Well, so I didn't either until uh, I saw it yesterday. So. I have a reason to go to Saskatchewan now. Well, one more reason. One more. I'm no. all of a sudden on Tourism Saskatchewan team <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> see, sometimes you just have to go and see how the other half lives, and then and maybe you you turn your turn your attention and turn your mind the other way. So you had a great weekend in Regina, but while you were partying in our neighboring province, uh, it was chaotic and insane here in Winnipeg. Yeah, I woke up Sunday morning to the news that the police were going to hold a news conference to what we were learning was going to be the death of three people, three homicides, two separate two separate incidents, but three people killed, the youngest victims 14, and then hours later suddenly the police were holding another news conference because there had been this brazen daylight shooting on Flora Avenue, and so lots of questions about what's been going on in the city when it comes to crime, and, and the word from Constable Rob Carver, we're going to hear 
more from him after 6.15 and again at 7, just about how busy that kept him. I think, Brett, you noticed in their news release, and I'm not sure how often they've had to, they've said it before, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they've written it like the way they had. Yeah, I've, in the news release that went out, they, they wrote this. The tragic incidents that have taken place within the city over the past 18 hours have placed a significant strain on Winnipeg Police Service resources. We will continue to triage all calls for service and prioritize personal and public safety over property concerns and incidents where there is no immediate threat. We ask those waiting for a police response during this time to please be patient. That was sent last night at 6.32 p.m. And I have never, I'm not, not to suggest that they have never put something like that in a news release. I may have missed it, but this really struck me yesterday that they actually included that in the release, meaning they wanted the media to share that as an important detail. And uh, that just goes to show how crazy this weekend was Mm -hmm. for the police service. Well, we know they've said it before in the sense of, you know, we've talked a lot about the rise in property crime and maybe they can't get to your break and enter if there's not an imminent threat. We've talked about liquor store thefts and other sort of shoplifting thefts that are happening at a wide variety of stores. And again, they're responding to those when they can, but it's not immediate. And so there's this sort of question out there now in terms of where are we as a city and what's like, is this something I need to be concerned about in the sense of my personal safety versus just my property being kept okay? Or, or, or should I be worried? And I don't know where everybody sits with that this morning. So we'll have more on the crime in a moment. Sorry, Greg, uh, because we do have a package that we're going to bring in our next segment. But we also need to point out as well, we had that crash, mm-hmm. that horrible crash on Friday on the South Perimeter. And then again, Last night, got word that there was a multi-vehicle pileup because the road conditions were poor. Greg, you, I think you said you were expecting uh, Carmageddon this morning, but it turned out to be okay for us. Yeah, based on the news release that I got from the city of Winnipeg late last night, I thought, oh my goodness, uh, what's going on? And all I could see out my window was snow on the roofs of my neighbors. So I thought, oh boy, we got more more snow than I thought. But no, I guess it was a freezing rain or similar type of vent uh, in the evening last night that caused problems on bridges and overpasses and apparently on the south perimeter as well. So uh, here we are again uh, wondering how carefully are we keeping an eye on that infrastructure and are we are we uh, heeding the warnings and, and doing all we can in terms of salting and sanding when the temperatures are mm-hmm. changing? So uh, lots of questions about that from folks. If Let us know what you're seeing. 780-6868. Global's Abigail Turner is out on the streets checking those bridges and, and we'll head out to the south perimeter later as well to see if uh, it's kind of the all clear now. And speaking of the south perimeter, there was that tragic accident collision on Friday that led to the death of a 19-year-old. So we also want to talk about that this morning because I hate that stretch of road is terrifying and I actually completely avoided it. I had to would have normally used it this weekend for two separate things, one with the kids hockey game, one for another event in the city and I went the long way around. I just I'm not I did not want to be on that road. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, Winnipeg police are still trying to piece together what they're describing as a stunning weekend of crime. Now, three people killed in two separate incidents and a brazen daylight shooting that sent four people to hospital yesterday afternoon, including a baby. Someone came to the front door of a house, uh, knocked, entered the house, and uh, fired off a shotgun, at least once, possibly more. Uh, We have four victims, uh, three adults and an infant. Uh, all were taken uh, by ambulance, two in critical condition, two in stable. Early indications are that the two in critical are being upgraded to stable now, but I don't have that confirmed yet. So that was Constable Rob Carver describing the scene on Flora Avenue. The shooting happened around 3.15 p.m. yesterday, and it was one of hundreds of calls that came into 911 over the weekend. An 18-hour period, and 18 hours we wanted to point out because somebody asked Constable Rob Carver in one of the many, uh, two two different scrums he had to hold yesterday to explain what was going on. Wow, crazy 24 hours. And he said, yeah, actually, if you do the math, all of this happened within an 18-hour period, which is why they put out that warning asking Winnipeggers to be patient if your call wasn't in, in imminent danger. As Global's Amber McGookin explains, two of those serious calls turned into homicide investigations with the youngest victim in one just 14 years old. Winnipeg police are investigating homicide 34, 35 and 36 that all happened within four hours of each other overnight. The first one happened at a Halloween party at this Kinver Avenue home in Tyndall Park. When police arrived, they found a 14 and 18 year old girl suffering from stab wounds. The 14 year old died from her injuries. 
And I, I think a 14-year-old being murdered is is absolutely uh, uh, horrible. Um, kind of uh, took my breath away this morning, and I know for investigators, uh, it's it's makes it very tough. Police say a number of people are in custody, but no arrests have been made yet. Neighbors nearby say it was a chaotic scene. And we heard a big bunch of pops, and all of a sudden, they, a big bunch of kids came running out in costumes and screaming and crying. The second scene is a double homicide that happened here in the back alley of Ross Avenue and Isabel Street. Officers arrived to find two males with serious upper body injuries. Both were taken to hospital where they later died. There's no word on what kind of weapon was used, but police say there is potential for this to have been gang related. And I'm going to again go out on a bit of a limb and say it doesn't appear that, that this was sort of a random targeting of two people who weren't known to each other. Police say while the homicide numbers are alarmingly high and Winnipeggers need to remain vigilant, most involve people who are already involved in criminal behavior. Amber McGookin global news. I don't know about you guys. I don't know if that makes you feel any better to say that if you're not, you know, involved in drugs or you don't know criminals that you might be safer than somebody else. And I, and I hear what the police are saying. They're trying to say, like, if you're not doing anything bad, odds are something bad might not happen to you. But for teenagers holding a party is a pretty common thing to happen. Mm-hmm. And then to have that party end with a 14 year old dead is not common. So I, I don't know how it makes me feel about the level of crime and or my odds of being hurt in a situation. But just as a reminder, uh, Amber said there had been 36 homicides in Winnipeg this year. The worst year on record was 2011 when 41 people were killed. And of course, we'll be talking through this about this throughout the day after seven. And again, with the police association at 835 and and the chief is planning to join us, chief of police at 935. So lots of questions. Tons of questions. And I would say about an hour before I was aware of everything that was going down over the weekend in the form of the release from Winnipeg Police Service and everything. I, I was already lamenting what had happened and what was being going down on social media oh Friday and Saturday with the with the liquor store robberies right. and the latest ones and and that has people enough concern. Never mind what happened in that span of eighteen hours with three homicides and then that shooting yesterday. I got this from a Winnipeg police officer yesterday via text message. I can't read the entire message to you, but I can read you this: the city is burning down. Greg, you hit the road bright and early on Saturday to head out to Regina. Did you stay up to watch the bomber game? I did. I was there until. Oh, oh yeah, of course you were. It was. It was in Winnipeg, so you were there. I was there, and and I and I left to, just to get home a little bit early, but I got home just in time to see all the excitement. Of course, Friday night at IG Field, it was a game worthy of not only looking back on this morning, but one play in particular. And Brett sent me a text message right after this play. <laughs> it's one that had Blue Bomber fans talking all weekend, and I think we'll be talking about for a long time to come. The Bombers come back to win a critical game at home in dramatic fashion with the help of a new quarterback and a play you don't see every game. What is it that Bob Irving has said to you in the past, Brett? Illustration is better than explanation. Mitchell's back to pass. He's forced up in the pocket, and now he throws into the end zone, and Herge Mayala has a Calgary touchdown. McGuire puts it down. Medlock puts it up, and he just sort of uh, reaches down and picks up his tee, and, you know, it's good. And pulls it down. He's going to run with it. Oh, and he takes a big hit at the 41-yard line, and the fans are booing. Uh, and it's wide left. Janarian Grant comes out to the 5, the 10. Grant the 15, the 20, the 25, the 30, the 40, the 45, the 50. And he's caught by Arbuckle, the holder. And Andrew Harris moves into a slot on the right and then swings. And a handoff to Dembski. And Nick Dembski's in for the touchdown. Medlock, ball on the tee, kick in the air. And it's good. And the Bombers are ahead. Here's Mitchell on... From the two, fires to the end zone, touchdown to Rodgers. And Kolaris back to pass, end zone all alone, Lawler, touchdown, Kenny Lawler. And Mitchell has the ball, throws down to the goal line, touchdown, Rodgers. And here comes Janarian Grant out of the end zone. He's to the 20. He's gone. Nobody's going to catch him. 
That'll be two points for the Blue Bombers. Janarian Grant all the way with the missed convert. Back to pass. Pressure coming. Steps up. He's got way too much time, and he has a touchdown to Herge Maiella. Calaris was going to run. Now he's scrambling to his left, to his right, back to his right, and he'll throw it deep into the end zone. Darvin no Adams, way. touchdown, Blue Bombers. What a play by Calaris and Darvin Adams. We had a little double move uh, there on the inside to Dembski. We were on a good route, but they, they covered it up. You know, if I just would have taken my read and thrown it to Wally, it would have been a touchdown pretty easily there. I think I brought my eyes down, maybe felt uh, some color, some red jersey in front of me, and uh, was able to go out of the pocket. And some of those things just happen out there. My, my pap app for uh, my entire career has come to like every single game, uh, every game. And uh, he passed away last year, so he was definitely here tonight watching that one. And uh, there were some strong wins, so I think he blew it back uh, to poor Darvin there. Latour sends it back. It's down. It's in the air. And Medlock is celebrating. He makes the kick. And the Blue Bombers have won it. It's something I've been thinking about for the last couple of years, just trying to kick a um, game winner in, uh, in IGF. It's been something I've been thinking about. So that unusual play I re referenced going into that package was the return of a missed convert by Calgary all the way to the Calgary end zone. And a lot of people don't know this rule, but that resulted in two points mm -hmm. for the Blue Bombers. Janarian uh, Grant also had a missed field goal return, almost went all the way for a touchdown. It set up a touchdown for the Blue Bombers eventually. And the buzz is all about the play of quarterback Zach Caleros with two practices with the starting offense under his belt that incredible play to Darvin Adams for a touchdown the win and a huge game for both teams got to remind you Calgary is battling for first place they wanted to win on Friday night and the Bombers battling to keep the potential for a home playoff game alive so what happens then now like where are we now with that possibility okay so there's a bunch of different scenarios <laughs> I, saw you, I don't understand any of these he's written down 40 47 different scenarios yeah yeah so let the most likely scenario is that Saskatchewan wins against Edmonton at home next week and then Calgary plays BC the final game of the season the bottom line is the Bombers need Calgary to lose that game. And then the Bombers would host the Western semifinal. That's kind of the key part of the whole scenario. Uh, if Calgary and Saskatchewan both lose, though, then the Bombers have to go to Saskatchewan for the West semifinal mm. and Calgary gets first place because they have the, the tiebreaker. If so. Saskatchewan loses? Uh, let, me get, let me get this exactly right. If Calgary wins and Saskatchewan loses. Calgary gets first place in the West. And okay. then Saskatchewan hosts the playoff. So there's the playoff question, and then there's the quarterback question. Now what? Is Caleros your guy? He's my guy. He's my I That play on Friday night when you hear Doug Brown go, no way. That's exactly what everybody was yelling. No way is if that made it. Yeah. That was a no way play. That is something that we haven't seen in these parts for an awfully long time. And to imagine that Caleros did that practicing as infrequently as he did leading up to the game and the fact that he's brand new to the offense and that play in particular, I cut out some of the post game comments. Otherwise we could have been here for an hour dissecting the game. But the bottom line was that was a play that Caleros went to Offensive coordinator Paul Laplace and said, you know, I ran a variation of a play that you have in the playbook here. Do you think we could switch it up this way? And Lapo said, yeah, let's do it that way. And that was the play that resulted in the touchdown. Caleros mm -hmm. was lamenting the fact that he had an easier play to make, but he missed it because he was feeling some pressure from the Stampeders. But he kind of went into the line, realized that wasn't good, backed up, spun around, went all the way around to his left and then made the throw almost off his back foot and into the back of the end zone where only Darvin Adams could catch it. And Adams kept both feet in bounds. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do that in the CFL. You only need one, but it was an incredible play. And like I say, one bomber fans will be talking about for a long time. So we've got Bob Irving joining us at nine Oh five to talk a little bit more about this and where do the bombers go from here? And then I guess the man whose decision it is, <laughs> As to who will start in that playoff game, Mike O'Shea, Coach's Show, 7 p.m. till 8 p.m. here on 680 CJOB. And still with the Bombers, Greg and I, Friday, Kildonan Place, we took part in our first ever media pumpkin carving challenge. They do this every year, and uh, various radio stations and TV stations get together and carve pumpkins for various charities. We were representing Habitat for Humanity Manitoba, and since it was game day, I said to Greg, why don't we do a bomber logo mm -hmm. on the pumpkin? 
Because, uh, A, I thought that might be sort of easy. It's just a couple a w? of... Got to carve out a W. Nothing fancy about that. And uh, thankfully, Greg stopped and picked up a, a set of pumpkin carving tools. They had community tools, but they had, like, steak knives and stuff. And you got the one with a really the little tiny knife. That was... Uh, that was it was wonderful. And... Uh, but when we got there, we thought we had a great idea, and then we realized what we were up against. These people come to play. They had props <laughs> and all sorts of gadgets. There was one pumpkin, and I don't know how they did it, but they, they carved out a hole, and they, I guess they shoved in this giant eyeball, and it, it seemed to have like a functioning waterfall of blood that was dripping oh over the they eye a, and they, into a pool underneath. They had a reservoir of red blood-like liquid that they pumped up over top of the eyeball, and it was this bleeding eyeball inside of the, of the pumpkin. It was, pumpkin. It was horrifying and uh, magnificent all at once. Well, so, can I just suggest now you made the pumpkin with a with the bombers logo yeah. and then the bombers won. Yeah. So now for the foreseeable future we need a we need a brand new pumpkin every week. Well, and I was going to win. say, I mean it's it's because of what we did. <laughs> right. Of course the bombers it, won. Of course. There's no choice now. You have to carve a pumpkin weekly. But while so while I started carving the W, Greg says in a panic, "Okay, I'm going to go to the dollar store and buy some props." So he went and bought a <laughs> like a green sort of tarp to put underneath to look like a football field and you bought some glitter glue. Glitter glue. You can win any clappers. competition with glitter glue. So we didn't win any of the official prizes, but if you go to our Facebook page, we've shared the picture from Kildonan Place's Facebook page. You have until October 31st to click on that picture and give it a like, and the more likes we get, maybe we get a chance to raise some more money for Habitat for Humanity, so we would love for you to do that. You can see the pictures on our Facebook page and on our 680CJOB Instagram, and we would love for you to follow us there, by the way. Jacqueline McGarry and McNabb, we just got a text message at 204-780-6868. And it uh, caught us all off guard here. It reads, just so you know, that young boy who was hit by the gravel truck on Friday was my Ethan, Ethan Boyer. I am his mom. I would like you to have a name associated to that horrific, preventable death. My son was a great kid with a whole life ahead of him. Just stopped in traffic, waiting for traffic to proceed. How does a gravel truck not see that traffic has stopped? How does he not see the large semi in front of Ethan stopped? Ethan had no chance of survival. I can only hope my Ethan didn't see it coming. Thanks to all the emergency responders who attended and had to watch and sit there for several hours to wait to get Ethan out. Also, thanks to all the witnesses who came forward to give statements. Thank you for sending us this text to uh, to say his name is Ethan. He's not a 19-year-old. His name is Ethan Boyer. I can not imagine what that mom's going through, but one of her additional comments is that he is not going to be another statistic. Hopefully the one on the terrible perimeter we call a highway, and hopefully he's the last one, sorry, that's killed on that terrible perimeter highway. And again, she just wants everybody to know his name, and I can appreciate that. I was driving that stretch. I avoided it, actually, for two days this weekend because... Uh, because of what happened to him and then you drive by and you see crosses out there and you see different markers from different collisions and you know over and over again I think MPI gave us numbers on Friday 85 is the number of collisions over the last 10 years it's not like we don't know that's a horrific stretch of highway so I feel for her and I thank her for listening and and it brings us to our next guest David Henry is a truck driver with REK Express you drive that stretch regularly David what went through your head when you first heard about that? Uh, honestly, it's no surprise, you know, because uh, when I'm, that is a stretch I do a lot when I'm going to work or coming home from work or when I'm coming from the south with a load with my semi and I'm coming around the perimeter. That is by far the worst area for me to drive through right after Waverly. And uh, then people are dodging and jerking around and it it's a really, really scary section. And um, so... Just no surprise. David, uh, just for those that might be unfamiliar with that area or those that go through there and, and are thinking to themselves, I, I never see any problems there. What is the issue? Are we talking eastbound, westbound, both? Uh, maybe we could just try and, and paint a, a, a more specific picture of what's going on there in that stretch. Yeah, the worst part for me is when I'm running westbound. So traffic is trying to merge off of Waverly and then there's slow garbage trucks and there's 
different people trying to get into Brady that aren't quite sure of where the access is because they may not go there very often. Not marked very well. Not marked very well. And it's a very, very short turning lane. It's not a long deceleration lane. And then coming east is not as bad, but there's some pretty aggressive trucks coming out of out of Brady that are very aggressive at merging into traffic when there's, again, there's no, not much of an acceleration lane. We received word from the province on Friday. We know that there have been upgrades along the south perimeter, if you can call them that, maybe closing gaps that maybe, well, I will say definitively should never have existed in the first place where they were allowing left turns in particular off the perimeter highway, very short deceleration lanes, sometimes none at all, just a cut uh, in the median. 24 of those have been been closed off and the province telling us that there'll be a, a brand new frontage road or service road created from Brady to Waverly on the south side that will eliminate the need for, for those left turns into Brady. So we're looking to get more details on that, but th- this is a much bigger issue, that stretch of highway. This is 1950s infrastructure in, in 2019. It's, it, it really boggles my mind. I drive all over North America and we have a perimeter that has lights on it. Why do we have, I mean, okay, they're going to save a few dollars, but by the way they've done things, by not planning ahead, and how can you tell that to the lady who just lost her son? They've passed that cost on to somebody else. I was just saying that you can put that light there. You can extend Waverly. You can get rid of Brady Road so you don't have that uncontrolled t- intersection. You can do all those things. But then you've just added another light. You haven't fixed the problem. So to me, we, we heard from the province this weekend and we heard from MPI saying 85 collisions. This is one of the first fatalities in recent years. But what's the number? What's the threshold to say that that a billion dollars for an overpass is too much? Where does that lie? Because to me, to me, that's the most dangerous stretch of highway in this province. Yeah, it it is. And why does it have to be that Brady has to have their access right there? There is a light on each side. One of those lights could have been used when they were doing all this other work. The one just passed. Uh, what's that road number going? When it just to the west of uh, Brady. 3.30? They, 3.30. They could route, route traffic off there along the service road, and it would have been much simpler. And the lights, the infrastructure is there. You know, there is a deceleration lane at those lights. Why couldn't we have done that? At the very least. At the very least. Why haven't we done that? You know, we don't need to add in another light right now. No, no. Do you no. think all of the lights that are along that stretch of the south perimeter are creating more aggression in drivers because they lo- they lose their patience when they go down that stretch and then maybe that leads to bad driving decisions? I absolutely think so. Like, we don't plan for traffic flow here as much as other cities do. We plan to slow traffic down. And these lights are slowing everybody down. So what do you do? You speed up in between the lights and you try to, you know, there, between St. Anne's and St. Mary's is a short stretch, and you have people just crisscrossing there all the mm-hmm. time thinking, well, that lane's going to be faster, that one's going to be faster, and they, it, it's ridiculous. I was know? saying before we started this that when I, when I finally got on there this weekend, sure enough, I see someone cutting across as quickly as possible and a, and a truck driver having to slam on their brakes, and I'm yelling, what is everybody in such a hurry for? You're going to the dump. Like, yeah. where are you going that is an emergency situation that either the car driver, the truck driver, the person hauling the trailer, where is everybody going that the answer would be, well, I had to get there as quickly as possible? There, there is no answer to that question. And for a truck driver, we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding the death of this young kid in the sense that the police haven't shared with us what went down. But for a truck driver, if you see that happen and you're carrying a full load and someone's either stopped in front of you or turning how hard is it to come to a complete stop before it's too late it's not hard because if you're looking ahead and driving like you should be as a professional you can anticipate what those people are going to be doing before they even do it themselves so you're watching on you're watching everywhere my buddy tells me one of my buddies tells me all the time keep your head on a swivel keep your head on a swivel and that's what we have to do as professional drivers and you just keep keep your eye on everything that's going on around you so that when these things happen, it's not a surprise. You know, um, 
I'm in a truck where if I hit the brakes too hard, it notifies the office and I can lose a safety bonus over that. And so the technology is there to keep track of us. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that I never have to get a call because I don't have that warning buzzer going off that I applied the brakes too hard. And it doesn't take a lot to send that alarm off to our office. And um, we just need to pay attention. We all do. I think I'm, Terry Shaw with the Manitoba Trucking Association has just been sitting here listening in on the interview and he helped us arrange this interview with David. My, my question is, are we taking, can we not just fix this right now? I mean, I know you don't like want to point a finger at anybody, but if the solution is at least to extend a road and get it done today, so to speak, or, or within the next month, can we not just do it now, Terry? Uh, yeah. Good morning, folks. Um, that's not an easy answer, unfortunately. Um, steps have been taken. Clearly, we need to take further steps, right? You know, last weekend was, uh, or last week's incident involving uh, Ethan was clearly a sign that whatever we have done, uh, we're not there yet. You know, um, Dave makes a great point in that we have to accept our responsibility as vehicle users and infrastructure users be safe, you know, drive responsibly. Outside of that, though, there is clearly confusion in the area. There's clearly infrastructure design and execution that is caused for people to drive in a fashion that isn't suitable to, um, you know, the, the pathway they have in that area. So a lot more work needs to be done, and they have some interim steps they're looking at taking. Let's get them taken now. Terry Shaw with the Manitoba Trucking Association, David Henry with REK Express, and of course we're just learning from the mom of that 19-year-old. His name was Ethan Boyer. Our thoughts are with you. Loren, we want to speak to the head of the Winnipeg Police Association. Yeah, on the phone with us right now is the president of the Winnipeg Police Association, Mo Sabarin. Good morning, Mo. Good morning. Incredible, stunning, bloody, I don't know what you want to call it, but it was an awful weekend in Winnipeg with three homicides and then another shooting yesterday afternoon that sent four people to hospital, including a child under the age of two. Uh, I don't know if we've seen something like this uh, in recent memory or if ever. What are your thoughts as we you watch those calls come in this weekend? Yeah, it was very, very tragic weekend. Uh, very disheartening, uh, if, if you ask me. You know, um, I, I love speaking to you folks, but uh, it seems like it's always when there's tragedy that, uh, that we always get together and have a little discussion. So I can't remember anything so horrible. Uh, in in the history of the uh, the period that I've been a police officer, so well, Mo, when we look at this, and and I, we got a text message from one of our listeners who this this news and so, combined with some other news is kind of weighing on this individual, and I know I'm sensing it with with many of my friends, uh, colleagues in and outside the building, those that I spend time with. This is weighing on our community greatly, but I, I always worry about our police officers and how are they handling this, and have you got an increase? Have you seen an increase in, in time away for stress leave? Uh, have you got members that are maybe retiring earlier than they might have otherwise because of what's happening in our city? Mm-hmm. You know, and I often say that uh, police officers will see things that they'll never be able to unsee. And uh, I, I do believe that, uh, and it may not be particularly like a stress leave situation, but I do know that uh, sick leave um, has gone up drastically in the last few years because um, a lot of our uh, members are being run from pillar to post, uh, and this is no different. Uh, I know Rob said that uh, our resources are stretched to the limit, um, to the limit, uh, stretched to the point of where it's going to break eventually. So um, it's, like I said, very disheartening. I know our members have are very dedicated and they've done a, a great job taking care of the situations this weekend, but um, those are things that will take toll on those members for many, many years to come. One more, the latest headline at cjob.com on the subject service backlog Monday as Winnipeg police deal with violent weekend. And we saw in the news release yesterday, uh, it seemed like an unusual uh, note to me, at least just in the sense that I don't think I'd ever seen it where the police said uh, the tragic incidents that have taken place within the city over the past 18 hours have placed a significant strain on Winnipeg police service resources. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, to the point where they, they had to alert the media so that we could then share that detail that you guys are just stretched to the max. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have seen it a couple times in the past when we've had major incidents. And you can imagine the resources that are required for one major incident, let alone, you know, the three that uh, that we saw over the weekend. And um, it it does take uh, an amazing uh, and detrimental toll to the uh, to the members. So the there was the homicide of the 14-year-old girl stabbed at a house party, and then there's two individuals dead in what appears to be a gang-related incident, according to police. Are we seeing a rise in gangs out there? Is that part of the problem? We've been talking a lot about meth, but what else is going on, and what are we supposed to do about it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, as you know, in the last few years, um, that uh, violence in our city has has increased dramatically. And while there's a lot of people that uh, want to continue to talk about solutions, um, you know, one of them is not decreasing the complement to the police or decreasing a budget. And, uh, you know, you may hear people say that we can't arrest ourselves out of this situation, but I'm going to suggest that law enforcement doesn't need to be reduced in, in times of, uh, of need. And there is a big need to have more police officers out on the street, more investigators, um, you know, so we have some of the lowest rates of incarceration right now. Um, there are people out there that are continuing to commit crime because we don't have the resources to um, to investigate, to run projects, and to arrest these people and put them in jail. And that's when you start to see crime rates reducing. Well, here's an example of how the public is feeling um... I'm just going to read this. Good morning, CJOB. Can the province declare a state of emergency to implement new laws to combat the over-the-top crime, violence, and the meth and homeless issue? And that's uh, from a listener who uh, texts uh, quite seriously about a suggestion and a potential solution. How far along are we before we have conversations that include solutions like that one? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, that uh, that those solutions uh, are going to be slow coming. Um, you know, you have to look, uh, emergency laws have to be enacted by the federal government. And uh, I think Manitoba is, is being the most negatively affected right now. So uh, there's a lot of conversation that's, uh, that is going on that uh, I understand, but, uh, you know, we've advocated for for a long time to have a, uh, a stabilization unit where, uh, especially for people that uh, are addicted to drugs, uh, may have mental health issues, and even missing persons, um, to be able to stabilize those people and then get them into counseling. But that's something that uh, Manitoba doesn't have right now. You mentioned resources, and that's always going to come up, particularly when you're talking to uh, a union. Your job is to represent your members. But have there been actual conversations, Mo, in the sense of what that number would look like? Say there was a check for more officers. Is it 10 more? Is it 20 more? Is it 100 more? Is there a number? You know, just off the top of my head, uh, I think we could easily use another 200 officers in in our conversations that we've had in the past. uh, In the last four to five years, our complement has decreased by 100 officers. So uh, even just getting us back up to uh, what our complement was at one point and then increasing it by another 100, um, we, I think we need to concentrate on, on general patrol, on investigations, uh, because we are in, in a crisis. How has how that number dropped, Mo? Is that for people who have just been you know retired or, or attrition? Where, where's yes, that number come from? It's basically through attrition and then... Um, so it's not the, a cut. You're just suggesting that people have quit and those jobs have not been filled. Right. But they've also slowed down the hiring process as well. Um, in the past, when you have X number of people leaving, you try to replace those people by having an additional class, two classes, that sort of thing. But because of the, the budget, um, we're seeing a decrease in the number of, of members being hired. And I have great concerns for this year's budget, and uh, which will further affect the service uh, in a negative manner. Mo, one thing that people are, it's all over social media, people are complaining, and people are now starting to react. The public getting involved in these liquor thefts, whether it be at Liquor Commission stores or at these new retail outlets attached to grocery stores. Are your members concerned about this? And lots of people asking, 
why does it seem as though the police can never attend to these? Yeah, and there's another symptom of uh, our members not being available to attend to these. Um, You know, nine times out of ten, if there's not a special duty constable in those liquor commissions, then um, the person usually is out the door with an arm full of liquor, and uh, by the time our members can attend, it's more of an investigative matter. They typically have video the individuals are usually doing multiple thefts, um, so it, it's very difficult to be on scene and be able to uh, be a deterrent. Um, I know Liquor and Lotteries has um, hired uh, many special duty officers, but uh, uh, even then, um, they've become very brazen and intent or attend in large numbers, and we all saw the social media swarming where, you know, upwards of 20 people go in, they fill bags, and then they just walk out. Um, And even if there was an officer or two officers there, that's very difficult to stop. You may be able to grab and hang on to one, but that puts the members in significant danger because you are outnumbered. Mo Sabrin is president of the Winnipeg Police Association, joining us live on 680 CJOB to talk about the violent weekend that was endured in Winnipeg. Mo, thank you as always for the time. We appreciate it, sir. Well, thank you for having me on this morning. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, and Irving. And it was funny, I was just thinking, you know, Bob is like an honorary couch potato around here because he <laughs> sees, I think, more movies than Jeff Braun and I combined, and he just no, asked I what I should see, what you should go see. Zombieland Double Tap, if you like that first one, it's, uh, it looks like it's a good time. I the didn't theater. see the first one, but I like Woody Harrelson. I think he's funny yeah. at the best of times. I've seen him on Saturday Night Live recently, too, and he's just great, so... Yeah. I might go see that. Well, I would recommend seeing the first one before. You would, eh? Okay. Yeah, I think so I, I know what's with, going on. Yeah, it would make yeah. a bit more sense, I think. I always take your advice, Brad, on the movies. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Do, do uh, the Bombers take your advice as to who should start at <laughs> quarterback, Bob? I don't think they need any advice from me or anybody else. It uh, was rather clear, I thought, on Friday night, the way Zach Kolaris played. that, uh, And Chris Streveler's status is still up in the air in terms of his wellness and whether or not he'll be healthy enough to to go out and play but uh, no I, I don't think they'll have any problems Michael Shea won't announce it until probably two days before the game but the practices when they come back and they're in a bye right now but when they come back the practices will tell us who they're leaning toward to start at quarterback it 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 just has to be Kolaris, in my view. Well, here's a, a pl- oh, sorry, I just no I was player. trying to set up the Go the the play of the game, and this is a play I think a lot of people are going to be talking about for a long time. Kolaris was going to run. Kolaris, <laughs> okay, so we both going to run. Now he's scrambling to his left, to his right, back to his right, and he'll throw it deep into the end zone. Darvin no Adams way. touchdown, Blue Bombers! What a play by Kolaris. And Darvin Adams. Kolaris in the post-game interview uh, suggested there might have been some some spiritual intervention, intervention from yeah. his uh, late grandfather. Yeah. But uh, is that one of the best plays you've seen in some time by a quarterback? Yeah, I thought he was just throwing the ball away when he when he let it go to avoid a big loss. And then I, out of the corner of my eye, I see all these players moving toward the corner of the end zone and Darvin Adams is one of them and you know these thoughts flash through your mind and I'm thinking well there's no way that that Darvin Adams can get to this football and sure enough he did he's straddling the sideline with his toes as he's catching it and yeah it was something else and Kolaris gets all the credit in the world for making it happen before I'm glad you set that up because to me that's when I yelled out this kid can play I don't know why I get to weigh in like that I like I watch like seven football games a year but up up until then were you already thinking that he had shown his medal and deserved that chance or was that the clincher oh no I was I think we were all thinking that at that point this guy's played eight years in the league and he's really had some outstanding games and some outstanding years until injuries derailed his career in a way that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy uh, but he's got some serious chops, Kolaris does, and, and he showed them uh, the other night. And it wasn't so much the throw to Adams, and that was impressive, but the way he led the drive for the winning field goal, that was the poise and the moxie and the veteran savvy that mm. you see from a quarterback who's been around, you know, been around the bend a few times. And, uh, yeah, he's got that in him for sure. I said he was calm, but he also looked like he was having a good time. Oh, yeah. Well, he's expressed that, you know, in the short time he's been here, and, you know, people say, oh, he should never go on the field again because he's had some concussions. 
And he, I mean, his answer is, I'm 31 years old. I love playing this game. I know what the risks are. I've seen the finest doctors in the world who tell me I'm okay to go. Uh, and he just still has the joy of a child when he plays the game. And it's fun to see. We have a traffic note. Stalled car southbound on the Disraeli Bridge in the left lane. Stalled car southbound Disraeli Bridge in the left lane. Bob was talking to a buddy of mine on Saturday, and I told him, I said, did you watch the game? And then I told him about this wild finish, and he said, see, that's the thing about the CFL. You just don't get that in the NFL. No, you don't. Well, you do sometimes, but in the CFL, those last three minutes can last forever. Uh, And, yeah, it's it's a special sort of, Part of every game in the CFL, and what a great way for the Bombers to end their regular season at home. Thrilling game. They beat the Evil Empire, which is what I call the Calgary <laughs> Stampeders, but I, I call them that with respect because they've been so good for so long. And they did it in dramatic fashion. Last play, field goal. We're all on the edge of our seats. It couldn't have ended any better in terms of the regular season. Now we'll see what happens. For the rest of the season. So Saturday night, Saskatchewan uh, is up on Edmonton. Edmonton comes back, ties things up, and then Saskatchewan kicks a game-winning field goal of their own on the last play of the game. Right. So where are we playoff scenario-wise? I've got it written out here, but I'm, I'm guessing you have it all in your head, Bob. <laughs> well, if Saskatchewan beats Edmonton, which is the first game that'll be played on Saturday, they will clinch first place. And that'll mean the Bombers go to Calgary for the semifinal game. If Edmonton somehow happens to upset Saskatchewan, and I don't expect that to happen, then Calgary will clinch first place by beating BC later in the night, which I fully expect to happen. And then the Bombers would go to Saskatchewan for the semifinal game. But I don't think that Edmonton will beat Saskatchewan. I think Saskatchewan will win, finish first, and then it doesn't matter what Calgary does in BC. Well, it does matter, sorry, because if they lose in BC, then the Bombers would host right. the semifinal that game. But I expect, I expect Calgary to beat BC. I believe the Bombers are going to Calgary in the semifinal. It could change. There are possibilities and stranger things have happened, but I think they're going to Calgary. How do you like their chances? Let's let's just go down that road just for a moment, if if we may. How do you like the Blue Bombers' chances going down that road through Calgary, then through Regina to get back to Calgary for Grey Cup Sunday? It's a a hard road, Greg. You know that. To win two road games to get to the Grey Cup is very, very difficult. It does not happen very often. But the Bombers have played Calgary three times this year. They've beaten them twice. All three games have been decided by four points or less. So could they beat Calgary? Sure they could. Then they'd have to go to Saskatchewan. They've played Saskatchewan three times, lost twice, and the two losses were right down to the wire. And the other game, they they manhandled the Riders. These three teams that are atop the West are so close. Really, they're so close in terms of talent and ability and everything else. It's going to come down to, you know, a little bit of luck, uh, turnover here, there, whatever. Uh, but the Bombers certainly, you know, they've got a shot. I think a real shot, but it's a hard road when you have to win two road games. And we haven't done that in Calgary, right? That's the one place. Yeah, that we've it's hard to with. win in Calgary. Yeah. It's very difficult. They they won there a couple of times in Mike O'Shea's time as head coach, but they were last games of the season when the Stampeders weren't playing for anything. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to factor that in. But five Stamp- five wins since nineteen ninety. Yeah, at McMahon Stadium, the Stamps rarely lose at home to anybody. That's right, not just Winnipeg. So they're hard to beat there for sure. But the last time the Bombers were there, which was a couple of weeks ago, they lost thirty seven thirty three. They were ahead in the fourth quarter. You know, they came close. Is a bye week going to be helpful for the Bombers yes, or work against them? I think so. I think it's great. They'll be well-rested. Uh, you know, the teams that they, the team they play is going to be banged up after playing on the final weekend of the season and playing a series of weeks in a row. No, I think the bye comes at a great time. Well, and how big is it? Because a lot of people look at the schedule and they'll say, oh, well, Calgary didn't have much to play for on Friday night. Yeah, they did. Oh, yeah. They want first place. Oh, they yeah. want to host that Western final. And so now, not only do the Bombers put themselves in a position where if all the cards fall correctly, they could still host that playoff game, and we outlined how that works, but it means that Calgary has to play a meaningful game mm-hmm. on Saturday night versus being able to rest their guys heading into their playoff that's game. That's right, and I think that's an advantage for Winnipeg. And I, as I say, I love the fact that uh, the bye comes at this time of the year for them. They will be as rejuvenated and as healthy and as strong as any team could be going into the playoffs. And teams often enter the playoffs in kind of a beat-up state. So I think things are falling right for them, but... Uh, if they do have to, again, go on the road to win these games, boy, that's uh, that's going to be a real challenge. 
Question of the day at cjob.com brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Who should start at QB for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in their upcoming playoff game? 71% say Zach Caleros, 29% Chris Strebler. On Twitter, way more lopsided, only 7% say Chris Strebler. So you can cast your vote at 680CJOB on Twitter or at cjob.com. I'll ask Mike O'Shea that question tonight on the Coaches Show. Is you going to ask him that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can come out and boldly ask the question. Yeah, I will say who's going to start at quarterback in the semifinal game and he'll say, we haven't made that determination. <laughs> There's room for both of them though. They could be a nice combo. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. Before we let you go, Bob, i got to ask you, because I know you're a big fan of golf. Were you watching golf on rare Sunday night golf? Yes. I watched Tiger Woods win in Japan. Uh, I'm a, I don't know how to describe myself in terms of uh, watching t- I, a tiger, I'm a tiger fan to a degree that I, I just admire his brilliance and his excellence and all the rest of it. Off off the uh, golf course, he has not been a real good human being at times, but yeah. uh, he is a marvelous. He's one of those athletes you're drawn to. You're just drawn to him if you're a sports fan. You can't look away because he's so good. Yeah, he tied the record for yeah. all time PGA. Eighty two. Sam Snead, and uh, and one of the stats that just blew my mind, 45 times he's gone into a final round yeah. with the lead, and only twice has he coughed that up. That's true. They, they describe him as not just the greatest closer in golf, but probably sports. It should be pointed out, too, that a lot of Sam Snead's wins, not to take anything away from him, were against fields that weren't very good. Ba- back in the day, they'd play a lot of sort of tournaments where there were... I mean, there was really nobody that he had to beat in them, whereas Tigers had to beat a real strong field just about every tournament he's played in. Oh, the game of golf has never been more competitive. There have never been better yeah. golfers and more of them, as you note, Bob. Yeah. No, he's a, he's a marvelous, marvelous athlete. He really is. And, and I was watching, because I'm a serial golf watcher, I was also watching the football game and the World Series game, Donald Trump getting booed. That was oh, a highlight boy. of my night. Yeah. <laughs> Lock Bob him Irving. up. Lock him up. We've been talking a lot this morning about all the violence in the city over the weekend. Three homicides, another shooting in which a baby was hurt. We already heard from the head of the Winnipeg Police Association at 837, Loren McNabb, who is joining us now. We got with us Chief Danny Smythe of the Winnipeg Police Service in studio with us to talk about what uh, some of your own officers are calling the weekend they haven't seen in quite some time, Danny. For you, Chief Smythe, is this a, are we at a tipping point? Has this crossed a line in terms of how far down the road we've gone with violence in our city? Well, you know, this is a continuation of some of the things that we have been experiencing over the last couple of years. It was a, a very taxing weekend for, for our people. Once again, I, I think they did a tremendous job just stepping up and, and going beyond and above and beyond to to meet the needs out there. But uh, yeah, it puts a lot of strain on our resources. When we talk about the numbers of officers, we... Loren mentioned the fact that we had the president of the Winnipeg Police Association, Mo Sabrin, on earlier, and he's got his ideas, and we'll play some of those back for you, Chief Smythe. But how many officers is a full complement for the city of Winnipeg? How many do we have available? And maybe give us an idea, if you can, the different job actions and different ways that officers might be implemented in the community. So there's three main streams that you'll see out there, and you may not even realize it. So, of course... That you, you see the uniform officers out there in the cars. At, at any given time, there'll be 27 cars on a shift. So at times, they'll overlap. There'll be 54 cars out there. And that's just sort of our general patrol response. In addition to that, we have a whole uh, set of investigators that are available. So when we have a weekend like this where there's shootings and homicides, you know, general patrol will initially respond, but it'll be the investigators that sort of take that, take that and run. And then there's a degree of support staff out there, whether that be community relations, traffic, the the TAC unit. Those are all support uh, to general patrol and investigators. So all of them work in tandem depending on what we're dealing with. And then are there some that, that aren't out on the street at all, that, that, that work behind the scenes in, 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 the, in the station, in the office, so to speak? So, of, of course, you know, when you go into a station, you'll see people working behind the desk. They're there to take reports when people come in. And then we have, um, you know, a report unit as well that can take uh, reports and that over the phone. But that's a relatively small number. We heard from the Police Association, and we'll play some clips in a second, about uh, sick leave potentially being on the rise, according 
to their data, um, officers taking some leave, perhaps that some positions haven't been filled. And then one thing that has been raised in the past with us and some of our reporters, Chief Smythe, is the officers with accommodated positions, which would be officers who've been moved off their regular shift, might be might be for stress, it might be for things like PTSD, or it might be because they just don't want to be out on the streets anymore. Do we have a number in terms of where we're at with the accommodated positions? So accommodations fluctuate, and it can go anywhere. In my time, I've seen it go as high as 100, uh, and it, it can be as low as 30. Usually it ranges somewhere in, in the middle there. Accommodations aren't for people that just don't want to be on the street anymore. It, it, it's We're accommodating for, for injury, essentially, you know, whether that be whether that be stress injury or whether that be a physical injury. So uh, some injuries are long-term. So, um, you know, there, there's an obligation for us to accommodate. Do we compare well with other cities when it comes to that number? I have had someone tell me that per capita, we're actually one of the higher cities in terms of officers who are no longer uh, doing, and I'm going to just use quotes, like yeah. regular duties, so to speak. I, I don't know uh, if, if I've ever seen it broken down on a per capita basis, but certainly it's an issue uh, for all of the major cities. I know when I was uh, meeting with the other chiefs in Calgary this past summer, uh, that was one of the topics of discussion. So all the major cities are, are dealing with that issue. So one of the points of discussion has been this idea of where are we at? And I think this was more specifically your response, Chief Smythe, to the to the meth crisis, this whole idea of not being able to arrest our way out of the situation. And, and Mo Sabrin addressed that somewhat in the clip we want to play. As you know, in the last few years, um, that uh, violence in our city has has increased dramatically. And while there's a lot of people that uh, want to continue to talk about solutions, um, you know, one of them is not decreasing the complement to the police or decreasing a budget. And, uh, you know, you may hear people say that we can't arrest ourselves out of this situation, but I'm going to suggest that law enforcement doesn't need to be reduced in, in times of, uh, of need. And there is a big need to have more police officers out on the street, more investigators. Um, you know, so we have some of the lowest rates of incarceration right now. Um, there are people out there that are continuing to commit crime because we don't have the resources to, um, to investigate, to run projects, and to arrest these people and put them in jail. And that's when you start to see crime rates reducing. I could ask you a variety of specific questions out of that, Chief Smythe, but what's your response to what Mo had to say? Well, in general, law enforcement has a role to play in this, but we're not the sole. Uh, response to, to what's happening in the community. I'm, I've often uh, characterized this as a, as a health issue, and, and it is. Um, but it is causing some people, whether it be the traffickers or even some of the drug users, to act in ways that require police response. So to that degree, uh, I, I agree with what Mo is saying, but it, it isn't just a law enforcement response. Is there a shortage of places for bad people to go? Uh, well, in terms of when we arrest someone for for criminal behavior, I mean, you know, there are there is space for that. But w- what we don't have is is a place for people to go to try to to beat addiction. Uh, you know, there there isn't enough space for that, and and that's been a, you know, that's been pretty apparent in the community. We've heard that a lot. I think a lot of members of the community come out and said we need more there because that is the, the root of the problem is the drug. Then let's help uh, address the drug issues for folks. Uh, Another thing, though, I don't know if we've talked enough about, we've had Inspector Max Waddell on as well, talking about the gang and gun issue in the city. One of the homicides, or I guess two of them, appear to be gang-related in the sense of the two male victims who were found in the back lane. Um, do we have a growing or changing gang problem in our city? And, and as I, as a regular Manitoban, should I be worried? No. Uh, I, you know, I, of course, people need to have situational awareness when they're out and about. Um, that particular homicide, I, I haven't been briefed as to what that is yet. Uh, certainly it's alarming whenever someone's shot in the open like that, but uh, I, I'm not aware of uh, what, what the context of that one is. So I don't know if that one is in fact gang-related. Having said that, you know, we know about a third of the homicides that we've had over the last uh, couple of years are gang-related. And, and really what you're seeing is, is gangs fighting over turf and fighting over their, you know, their space and in, in, in selling this commodity. So is, is that that's new, a real thing uh, that for us. one third number? Is that on the rise compared to previous years? No, it's, it. well, you know, I've been really monitoring that pretty closely ever since we started to see the emergence of meth. And, 
And, you know, it's, it's staying fairly consistent in around a third. Hopefully it wasn't some sort of crime equinox yesterday, Danny, but it felt as though it may have been. And, and Constable Carver, in his comments to the media yesterday, two different times yesterday because of the way things went down, did remind us how many resources are involved in a in an investigation that's a homicide. And so maybe you can just help us with that. You outline the fact that duty officers might start off, but how many duty officers are getting called to an event like that? How long are they there? And then the cascading ramifications of their involvement. So it depends on the, the scope of the event, but, you know, in this past weekend to have three homicides in such a short period of time, it's an unusual thing. So you'll get the initial uniform response typically, and, and that can be anywhere from, you know, uh, upwards of five to seven cars that would attend that and basically lock a scene down and, and try to identify witnesses, uh, you know, um, hold the physical scene down. All in the background, the, the investigators are being called. So if it happens after hours, you know, a homicide team would be contacted at home and they'll come in in the middle of the night. In addition, we'll have forensics uh, units that will be called back uh, in support to help gather evidence. So it can be a myriad of things. And then, you know, you can appreciate a homicide scene could take days to process. So during that time, we'll have officers and sometimes cadets help us guard scenes while that's happening. So, you know, we had an officer involved shooting last week. Well, we're still guarding, not not the scene anymore, but the person that was shot is still in hospital and we're guarding him because he hasn't actually been uh, he hasn't been arrested and processed yet. So um, those kind of things put a tremendous uh, pressure on our, our frontline resources. So as a result of that, Chief Smythe, then you might have difficulty arresting those who are uh, violating parole conditions or you have to do your checks and balances for the folks that you need to assess on a, on a daily basis. Has that become an issue in terms of resources and getting to those, I don't want to call them minor, but they're, they're not pressing? You know, I, I think where our general citizenship feels the impact is when they're trying to make a report on something that's not an emergency and then they're told that, you know, you're like a hundredth in line kind of thing. And, and you know, it, it can sometimes take days for us to get around to to some of the lesser uh, offenses just to take a report. So that's frustrating for people, but they may not actually, you know, necessarily understand how much of our resource gets caught up in the major crimes. So what fixes that? Uh, the police association came on, and again, I, I had said to him, I get it, you have a job to do too. You're, you're a union, you're representing your members. His number was that we're down about 150 people in terms of maybe officers that have retired and those positions haven't been filled. And Mo Sabarin suggested 200 was the number of officers that would be needed to, he thinks, help rectify the situation, so to speak. Are more not officers needed, and are those numbers accurate in the sense of at least let's start with the number of positions that haven't been filled? So I, I don't know where that information is coming from. So, you know, when we look at resources, we try to compare, you know, one of the common measures across the country would be population to the number of cops. And we're certainly in line with, you know, we're, we're well within range there. Um, you know, I think we rank about seventh or eighth in the country uh, on that particular metric. Uh, but there's no question uh, the calls for service demand here in the city. I, I've never seen any other city have to deal with what we're dealing with right now. So it does put a, an awful lot of strain on our frontline. So do we need more? You know, certainly I don't want to lose any. You know, we're trying to deploy the resources that we have as effectively as we can. And, and uh, you know, but I appreciate the cost of policing is, is, is significant. So where does that crime rate fit into that whole equation of population, officers per capita? It seems to me like that should play a role in helping us understand where, whether or not we are where we need to be in terms of a complement of officers. Am I offline there? Well, I, I think crime rate is just another metric that you measure the health of your community with. So it's not necessarily a metric of the police performance. I mean, if it was that simple, I think all every city would have figured oh, out. Oh, no, maybe to... not in terms of performance of, but what's a, a satisfactory or a, or a complement or level of, of officers that would be deemed appropriate to other communities. That, that's got to be part of the, the metric, does sure. it not? I mean, I mean, if you look at the board, you know, one of the themes that they'll, we want to meet the needs and expectations of the community. And, and you know, the community has a big say in, in, in uh, the police resources that are, how we're deployed, the numbers that are deployed. Uh, 
you know, the board makes a recommendation to the city over, over our budget uh, at the end of the day. Well, when, you, when you talk about the community, we've seen in recent weeks members of our community saying enough is enough with the, as it has to do with these liquor mart robberies where they're physically intervening and stopping people. There was a video over the weekend at the liquor store on Plessy's in Transcona where a guy shoulder-checked a thief into the wall and then two guys, he and another guy took him down because yeah. people are getting fed up with the lawlessness in our city. You know, that's been a very uh, unique problem that we're trying to help with. Uh, certainly, we are working with the, the, the liquor officials, you know, try to influence them to change some of the ways that they're running the retail space. You know, I have meetings coming up this week with, with government officials that oversee that as well. That brazen sort of lawlessness that you described, you know, we've never really encountered that. But we're seeing that beyond the liquor stores, mm-hmm. right? You, you hear about it in traffic. You hear about it, uh, you know, e- even this this party that was out of control. I mean, we've all been to parties that have been out of control, either as a kid or as a cop. I've attended my share of them. But we didn't see the weapons come out like we're seeing now. And and, and so, yeah, there is there's something, something going on. So we see more... Brazen thefts. We have more weapons. We heard Constable Carver say there's more knives out there, more machetes, more guns, a rising gun crime. So why not sit here today and say, let's start with 100 more police officers. I appreciate that you, you acknowledge a resource issue and there's always dollar and cents. But if we've reached a level that we haven't seen before, why aren't we coming up with a, a solution that says, let's start with this. Let's get more boots on the ground and see if that makes a difference. Well, you know, certainly the strategy behind it, that's something I work with with the board and the community. Uh, you know, together we, we put forward a strategic plan that would include resources. Uh, having to be sensitive to the impact on, on the city as well. So that's something that I don't do alone. Uh, I work in tangent with. You know, when I started as chief three years ago, my commitment was to make sure that we were using our resources effectively. And I didn't want to lose any resources, uh, you know, and, you know, that's kind of where we've been at. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, what do you the, have a number? Sir? I, I don't have a number in, in particular. But do um, we need more officers, would you say? You know, I think every city could use more more officers. It's just how you use them. You know? Police Chief Danny Smythe, you're off the hook. We are out of time. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate the visit. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.